Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the show. So we're going to talk about the economy today. We've not talked about it for a little while, though um, the current economic situation is obviously something we'll be talking about, I think, quite a lot in the coming months. Um, I think it's fair to say that Britain's economy has been in some state of crisis um, since the financial crash. We had a disastrous, a catastrophic financial crash back in 2008 for which the rest of society had to pay and has carried on paying. Um, it's predicted that living standards for workers in 2026 will be lower than they were in 2008. British workers, on average, are £1,000 poorer uh, now than they were back in 2008. Look at any stats. They're just bad, to be honest. Bad, bad statistics. Um, so the bottom fifth of earners in this country are 20% poorer than their French and German counterparts. You just literally just go by any measure. And we've gone through the longest squeeze, as I often tell you, the longest squeeze in wages now since the Napoleonic age. And um, that's an important context, I think, to set any economic figures that we get. Um, I've not even talked about the stagnant growth we've had. Um, if you want to look for high economic growth, you have to look at the post-war decades. And um, ever since Thatcherism, the economic growth figures have basically been decade by decade on a downward curve um, in the last two decades is stagnated at a low level. Now, today's annual inflation rate uh, fell sharply six, down to 6.8% from 7.9% in June. Now, it's really important people understand what that means. It doesn't mean prices are falling. It means that the rate at which prices are increasing has fallen. So prices are rising by 6.8% rather than by 7.9%. So I think that's obviously crucial to understand in terms of Prices have gone up, but now it's the rate at which prices are going up. That's what matters. But the problem is what's known as core inflation hasn't, uh, has not, isn't actually higher than that rate. Um, and the wage squeeze, squeeze hasn't ended. Look, these are the sorts of things I want to talk about today. I think it's very important to talk about. Um, but there's also warnings of a recession. There's also um, now the likelihood of in fact, inevitability, I would say, of further interest rate hikes that will have a big knock-on effect on the economy, on people's living standards, which is what I particularly, obviously, always like to focus on. And uh, So we've got lots to talk about. We've got brilliant guests. We're going to join in. And after that, um, I thought we'd have a little chat about other stuff. So do keep tuned in for that. Do press like, um, whether you're watching live or not, um, and hit the subscribe button. And... Um, do keep the show on the road on patreon.com forward slash energetic four. That's how we do the almost daily videos, reaching about one and a half million uh, hits on YouTube uh, a month, one, one and a half, two million on Facebook, a similar figure separately on Instagram. We reach hundreds of thousands 
and I've not even mentioned the podcast. So we're reaching a very large audience, and that's only made possible by you. Um, I can often see by the comments that we're not just reaching people who agree, which is important. Um, so, yes, um, we're not bankrolled by anyone. Just just you. Just you lot. Um, and uh, also, you can use Super Chat to put questions to the guests and support the show as well. So someone said that was an abrasive start. Sorry. I think I'm in a slightly abrasive mood, um, which is what often happens when I have to just read about Conservative Party policy. <laughs> it's not exactly, it doesn't have to put a spring in my step. It's a very sunny day, relatively. It's about as much summer as we've got for a long time. But nonetheless, reading about Tory policies is not necessarily a mood enhancer, I would say. Um, but in any case, um, yeah, and just so you know, we've got, we've. I'll talk about this later, but we've got lots of... Um, very interesting interviews coming up, um, as well as we've got our annual Conservative Party and Labour Party conferences also coming up, uh, which I'm also very excited about. Um, okay, right. Well, I'm now going to bring in our brilliant guest, Alfie Sterling, who's Chief Economist and Associate Director at the Joseph Roundtree Foundation. He's been on many times before and explained, I suppose, economic data and news in a very accessible way. Hey, Alfie, how are you doing? Hi, Owen. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much. Before uh, we talk about today's figures, I just wanted to put something by you, which was a BBC headline yesterday, uh, which mm. said UK wages rise at fastest rate since records began. It got community noted. So this is what happens now on Twitter. I think it's the only good new function added to Twitter, where when basically things which are regarded as misleading or even misinformation or even just plain wrong, um, users can add notes to them. And this says headline is misleading. And um, if you it te- you have to get to the seventh paragraph until it actually explains in real terms wages are falling, um, which I think is, um, I don't know, slightly unfortunate. I just want, what, just your take on that, wages rise at record levels so since, re- since records began and why that's misleading. Yeah, I and mean, I think it is an important one to um, to pick up on. Um, and I, I saw a few people were, you know, obviously tweeting in English yesterday, and I was sort of one of them at one point. I mean, I think it's unusual for a BBC headline to need two really big footnotes. Um, you know, one is was already a problem, but but two I think is a bit extraordinary. And the two big footnotes are first the one you've mentioned, which is that when you talk about record pay increases, people tend to think that means the real spending power and the ability to buy things. And of course, uh, that headline pertained to the nominal growth figures, completely disregarding any sort of inflation growth um, in the economy. So it, as you said, it wasn't a real terms increase at all. In fact, if you use um, a consumer price measure of inflation, it was still a real terms pay decrease um, for that month. But the second also is this point about records and records being broken, um, because when you talk about, you know, the biggest pay increase on record, that sounds like a you know, long arc of history. But actually, the particular record they were referring to goes back to um, 2001, when there was a sort of statistical change in the data series, quite a technical thing. Um, and if you, you only have to go back a couple of decades before that, and then even nominal pay increases, so the measure the BBC were referring to, were far larger, far higher than what we saw um, last month. So. Yeah, I think it was a bit problematic. It was a, it was obviously attention grabbing, um, but came with some big health warnings. In terms of today's figures, what would you what's your kind of summary of what today's figures actually mean? I mean, to some extent, they don't mean very much, um, and that's for sort of two reasons. One is that um, they were actually 
bang in line with what um, sort of most of the forecasts were suggesting. And that's because you can sort of see what's going to happen to inflation in the short term arithmetically by what's coming in or coming out of the system. And in this case, you've had energy prices coming out of the system because of the change in the um, energy price cap that sort of takes place every six, 12 months. So you can predictably see when it's going to impact inflation. So we knew that was going to reduce inflation by about a percentage point, And it came in um, at about that. And I think the second reason why it doesn't mean a huge amount is because where these rates sort of sit doesn't change the reality for you know millions of people up and down the country in terms of how they're struggling. Um, and that all depends on the level of prices, not at the rate at which they're changing. So, you know, as I think you were reminding people at, um, at the top, the rate of inflation um, is just talking about the rate at which prices will have further increases. Um, so how much the level will continue to increase by. It's not a decrease in the level. And what people are really struggling with right now is the level of price, the amount they're having to spend, particularly on essentials, um, relative to their income. And inflation is just telling you how much worse that's getting. It's not It's not making it any, um, any better. I'm, I'm interested in the differential impacts. I've just got a little clip here, which is from Professor Jonathan Cortez, who I've interviewed many times before, who's speaking on... Sky News, just what your, your thoughts on this. The second point I would make, and this is the important one, is about the distributional impact. Um, what these figures also show is that inflation continues to hit the poorest households hardest. They've seen inflation up by perhaps 3% more than ri the richest households over the last couple of years. Um, so people at the bottom end are getting squeezed. And you also saw that in the pay figures yesterday, where people at the upper end of the income distribution working in finance and so on, are getting higher pay rises than people at the bottom end of the earnings distribution. So the in, what's happening is we're, we're redistributing money from the relatively poor people to the rich. Um, and that's not something the Bank of England can address through interest rate raises. The government has to do something about that by providing more support to people at the bottom. What's your thoughts on that, just kind of the impact this is having? It's diff different households are impacted very differently, basically. Yeah, and I think I think Jonathan's absolutely um, spot on on both those points. So we know that inflation at the moment in particular is affecting lower income households proportionately more. And that's because inflation is driven by the cost of some key essentials like food, which, by the way, was still 14 percent in the figures yesterday. Now, something like food makes up a bigger proportion of a low income family spending than a high income family spending because the high income family is spending lots more on discretionary spending, luxury things, going to cinema, etc., um, and that means that a lower income family gets hit harder by a rise in food prices and it's hitting them disproportionately hard. And he's right as well about pay. You know, we've definitely see, we're now seeing a real sort of, if you like, divided and polarized labor market in terms of pay. You're seeing professional services, finance, et cetera, seeing pay settlements on average that are well above the rate of inflation. And then if you look at hospitality, retail, um, the uh, sectors that, you know, tend to have lower earnings on average, the pay settlements are far below inflation. So um, he's right on both those points. And he's, and he's right that the Bank of England can't do much to address that. And, and in fact, can make things worse um, through interest rates alone. When we talk about uh, core inflation, by the way, just to kind of unpack that and why why are the figures about core inflation, why might why are they concerning people where they're at? I think this is this is actually a really important point, and it, it perhaps gets a little technical, but I think it's worth bearing with it because I think it's I think it, I do think it's incredibly important. So, the thing that economists really care about is the extent to which inflation is being generated domestically, 
Um, and the reason why that's important is because um, interest rates can only work by suppressing the domestic sort of momentum in the economy, reducing spending by making the cost of money more expensive. And so if your inflation um, isn't being generated domestically, there's very little good you can do for interest rates at all. I mean, there's a little caveat over how good they are anyway, but, but certainly um, just take as read that it affects domestic um, energy, uh, sorry, inflation um, generation. Um, now, core inflation is attempting to look at the proportion of inflation that's domestic um, domestically generated. But there's a big problem here, which is that you can't measure that directly. Um, you can't look at that directly. You can only rely on proxies. And core inflation is essentially a, a choice of a proxy. Um, and what it does is it's one of two ways of tackling it. One is um, trying to take out items out of the, the basket of inflation that um, that we know are sort of affected by external pressures like energy, like food, et cetera, or just doing a statistical approach and saying, right, we're gonna take out the sort of 15% most anomalous items. But either way, you're not actually getting at the crux of what you're looking for, which is domestically generated inflation. And, and a recent way of thinking about that is, if you think about energy, yes, you can strip it out in terms of the direct cost of energy to all of us, whether that's uh, fuel at the pump or for our energy bills, but energy is also an input to everything else. So these things that are so-called core also have are also paying for energy, which is affecting their price. And just to make this very, um, just to crystallize this, make this concrete rather than conceptual, if you think about all the inflation increase from about 2019 to the peak in 2022, uh, and you look at just core inflation, a third of the increase in the core inflation bit was driven by energy. Um, and yet that's the bit we're sort of using as our proxy for domestic um, inflation. So go back to your question, the reason why economists care about domestic generated inflation is because they're looking at what they might be able to tackle through interest rates. And I, th and I think we've got a problem when our proxy, in this case, core inflation, doesn't always capture that particularly well. I'll come on to interest rates shortly. In terms of what we call the cost of living crisis, it's difficult to know, actually, when you'd actually say the cost of living crisis begins, because even if you look before the financial crash from 2004 onwards, for the bottom half of the income distribution, incomes began to stagnate. For the bottom third, they actually began to decline. So you could almost say that the cost of living crisis began... 20 years ago for a lot of people certainly i mean when when you look at these sorts of figures so you know it, someone's like well there's light at the end of the tunnel because um you you do have it's true very high levels of inflation but now wages are going to pick up what do you say to that people say the cost of living crisis is perhaps coming to an end and how much do you think actually the problem we've got is actually structurally embedded in the economy and how it's organized yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it is really structural, um, even if the direct causes um, at this particular moment in time aren't, aren't, um, aren't structural, our vulnerability to them was always structural. Um, and, you know, for that reason, I think, yeah, you could argue that, uh, you know, that vulnerability lies pretty deep and it comes from the erosion of our welfare safety nets. It comes from the erosion of the ability for, um, you know, to have generate productivity and high wages in this country. Um, it's the erosion of public services and the public realm and the ability of that to be a, an effective safety net um but also i think you know this point that a cost of living crisis uh has always has two elements one element is rising prices but the other is what's happening to incomes and it only becomes a crisis when prices exceed incomes so you can't just look at prices alone and sort of then say right we're in a crisis or not you've got to look at incomes and we've seen those as you said in terms of earnings and in terms of the cash safety nets um, suppressed and cut back um in real terms now for the best part of um, a decade and a half um, in terms of 
you know, FSM the dog says this buster myth of wages causing inflation. And obviously, we, you often hear from the government, from support, from I suppose support of newspapers, the idea of a wage price spiral, but also from the Bank of England. What, what's your thoughts on the idea of a wage price spiral and that being what's driving or pushing up inflation? Yeah, I mean, I think I think actually the Bank of England do tend to um, check their language a bit more than that. They rarely, if, if ever, use that exact term because it is a bit of a you know, it's not, it's not, it's a bit of a controversial term, even sort of in just mainstream economic literature, it's not really backed up. It's a sort of hypothesis that's put forward, but it's, um, um, it's, it's not, it's controversial. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, if you look at, um, it's, it's not an accurate description of what's um, happening. I mean, first of all, um, the inflation that we're seeing in the UK across the world is an import shock. Like that is the, the causes, that's the origins of it. It's, um, it's supply chain led coming out of COVID was the first impact. And then it was the war in Ukraine affecting, um, energy exports and fertilizers now affected food, etc. So these things are global phenomena. It's an imported shock um, to the UK. Um, and the second thing is, I think you know, just just something that's being led by wages or the, this concept of spiral is far too simplistic. Like what we're essentially seeing is, as prices move through the economy, who loses and who wins basically follows the pattern of existing economic power, um, and you see a sort of pass the parcel of that price right. cost, right. if you like, being moved around the economy. Um, and then the weight falling disproportionately on those that have the least bargaining um, power. Um, and different points in time, you might see it ebb and flow between different stakeholders, wages, profits, consumers, et cetera. Um, but in the end, it follows the, the gradient of power. Um, and workers do tend to, tend to lose out on that. Um, in terms of interest rates, do you, do you buy the argument behind the necessity for increasing interest rates? And what's the likely impacts? Because it's not just mortgages, is it? It's that the number of the private rented sector has massively expanded. So people with buy to let landlords will they, they will pass on increased mortgage costs onto private renters. So what I mean, just what's your general take on the economic basis of the rationale for hiking interest rates and the and the extent they've been hiked? Mm. I mean, just on this point about the impacts, like yes, it you know it will have um, indirect effects effects on the rental market that could cause a lot of problems. Um of course isn't talked about enough, but it has direct impacts right through all sorts of lending, you know, credit cards, overdrafts, personal loans. Um, and these all, again, you know, really affect low income families, particularly those that are relying on those those lines of credit to pay for essentials. Like some of the work we've done at the um, Joseph Roundtree Foundation shows that you've got about 5.6 million low income families in this country with about 14 billion in um, unsecured lending um, debt, you know, credit cards, overdrafts, et cetera. Um, and more than 2 million of those families have borrowed to literally put food on the table. Um, so they are now experiencing this sort of this double pinch where they are first being hit by the price of essentials themselves. And now they're being hit by the cost of money to keep themselves afloat. Um, and it doesn't, I don't think it gets talked about enough. Actually, people do turn too quickly to mortgages um, as the sort of main thing to think about. Um, but just more widely, I guess, on, in terms of the macroeconomics um, of this. I mean, look, in part, it just comes down to a fact, which is that the Bank of England can't do much about a big terms of trade shock. Like the country has become poorer and it also can't do a huge amount actually in terms of the the more uh, precise distributional outcomes. Like that is the responsibility of government um, to try and really affect the distributional outcomes. What they can do very broadly, the Bank of England, is choose whether, broadly speaking, we take that pain through either higher inflation for longer or by suppressing nominal incomes so suppressing the, the amount of economic activity in the in the economy that's either suppressing pay or it's um increasing unemployment 
And they can choose the balance between those two things. And rising interest rates pushes it more towards incomes and jobs. And lower interest rates than that would always be the case pushes it more towards inflation. But the big problem here is that the bank is governed by, you know, the bank is has to work towards its mandate, which is to prioritize inflation and price stability above all else. Um, but actually, if you look at, if you like, the symmetry of the cost here, if if the bank were to get it wrong, say, and increase interest rates too far and too fast, that would certainly uh, suppress income that could do so permanently, if not tip us into a recession. And the effects of that are really permanent. You know, it's very hard to get people back into jobs once they've lost them. It's really hard to realise investments again once the opportunity's gone by. So that, that cost is very permanent and hard to recover from. Whereas the cost of higher inflation for longer, well, we know what to do about that. We can increase interest a bit more slowly and again uh, to try and recover it. So I think, you know, in science, when you have this sort of uncertainty as we have in the current economy and how to deal with this problem, in science, you, you tend to adopt a precautionary approach when the costs are potentially very severe of getting it wrong. So that is... Um, minimize um, the, the negative impact that you might have. And that would actually suggest the bank should be very cautious on raising interest rates and wait to see what the effect is of as they move through the system um, and wait to see what the negative outcomes are in terms of um, people's incomes and jobs. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Um, David Rassler says, what can be done to ease the cost of living crisis in the poorest of this country? Is it time for UBI? I mean, the government's basically protesting that, or not, well, they're basically arguing there's, you know, within the fiscal envelope they have, there, there's nothing that can be done. Um, that it would be inflationary. That's a lot of the arguments being made. It's just quite notable. I mean, Spain is an example where they did reduce, the Spanish government did reduce inflation by various economic interventions measures. I just thought, you know, what's your take on the kind of defeatist shrugging of shoulders from the government when it comes mm. to a cost of living crisis? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there are two different points there. I think there's, and there's the point about what can government do to um, release on the distribution outcomes. And then there's the point about what can government do to, to try and tackle inflation directly. Um, and on the former, I mean, I think it's just, it's utterly uncontroversial. Government can and should do a lot. And in the UK, it can and should be doing a lot more than it's currently um, doing. I mean, I think, I, I think you know, pointing a finger at the income safety net, at the social security system is the right place to start, um, actually. Um, whether it's a UBI or something else, I think the key point here is adequacy. So the people that need that safety net most, are they getting enough from it? Um, and the problem is at the moment is that even if you take a really conservative estimate about the cost of essentials in this country, the main rate of universal credit is, is you know, tens of pounds short a week 
just affording those essentials. So I think, you know, the first thing to do is to, is to restore that safety net to something that is just reasonable and common sense um, um, and boosting, um, boosting that income safety net. Um, on that on the point about tackling inflation directly and, and the question of Spain, I mean, it is a really interesting um, example. And it does show when a lot of economists have argued this, um, and you've seen it in history as well, that governments can do a lot to tackle inflation directly and in a very progressive way, whether that's sort of price caps, um, caps on rent, um, taxing excess profits, etc. Um, and certainly does look like it worked well in, in, in Spain. The interesting thing is that often the Treasury's argument to not doing this stuff is to say, well, it's not our job. We're not here to, ta- to target inflation directly. That's the bank's job. But they can't say that anymore because the prime minister has deliberately targeted 5% inflation as government policy. And in fact, when asked why public sector pay increases haven't been higher, uh, government have said, well, it's because it's inflationary. So they're already saying that they're they're making decisions on fiscal policy on the basis of inflation. Well, if so, why not then think about things they could actually do uh, that we should actively bring inflation down in a progressive way? And just finally, very quickly, recession. How much of a threat do you think that is and what, what would it actually look like? I mean, unemployment is at the moment still relatively low. There's a, though very high levels of economic inactivity part, in large part because of long-term health problems. But what's your, what kind of, how bad do you think a recession could be, basically? I mean, I think I think we probably shouldn't get too hung up on the word recession, the sort of like the technicality of being in or, or out of recession, um, to be honest. What we know is that the Bank of England, by increasing interest rates, has made us all, has weakened the economy in terms of lower incomes, um, more unemployment than would otherwise be the case. It has increased the risk of a technical recession. Whether or not that happens remains to be seen. There was a forecast last week that said there's a two thirds chance of it happening at some point next year. But in terms of what it actually means for people, well, a recession comes through normally one of two forms. It's either an income shock or an employment shock. Um, and we're already in an income shock. You know, that's what we're experiencing right now as the cause of it. So, and for many people, uh, you know, 7.3 million families on low income, for example, that can't afford essentials, they are in a recession. You know, they are exp- experiencing the sharp end of what a recession would mean um, already. Um, so I think, I think it is important not to get hung up on the technicality of it and look at the effects one level below that um, and what government can and should be doing to, to avert them now. Alfie, that was a real tour de force. The whole economy <laughs> covered, Don't essentially there. Um, but really, really brilliant stuff, Alfie. And obviously, do everyone should check out Joseph Rowntree Foundation, what they do. They do brilliant. Lots of research, which I've drawn on for many, many years myself, but also Alfie's work, Alfie Sterling. Look him up on Twitter and give him a follow and share his stuff. Alfie, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Take care, buddy. Take care. Thanks so much, buddy. Great stuff there from Alfie. I think, I think uh, we're a far better understand. I, we have a far better understanding of exactly what we're dealing with there. Um, oh, this is interesting. Yes, someone says very fitting. Have either of you heard of Donuts Economics by Kate Rayworth, anti-growth, pro-mutual flourishing? I've been meaning to interview. That's. I'm glad you've raised that actually because I have been meaning to interview uh, Kate Rayworth. Actually, the sister of Sophie Rayworth, the BBC presenter. Would you believe? I mean, they're obviously completely different people. Um, but I, I didn't actually realise that myself um, until relatively, relatively recently, so I was surprised. But anyway, yes, Kate Rayworth. I, what I'm going to do is try and interview Kate Rayworth. So I'm going to add that to my add that to the list. So I appreciate that. Uh, I appreciate that suggestion. What are we going to talk about? Let's just keep talking. Um, one thing I was going to bring up, actually, which is quite just useful, um, I would say, um, is a poll today, which was in the iPaper, uh, which, I mean, showed essentially what we already knew, 
Um, but it's again useful to have polling data, which is that um, a large majority of the population supports uh, renationalizing uh, utilities, uh, which is what which is energy, water, rail, um, energy, water, rail. Am I missing any of them? Um, we own it. I'm just going to try and get someone from We Own It, who are the brilliant public ownership um, think tank. We've had on we've had them on before to discuss um, discuss these sorts of polling, um, but uh, we didn't get them at short notice. I had to look after my cat. My cat kit is ill at the moment. Um, he's lost quite a lot of weight, which is not great. So we're having to force feed him. Anyway, um, but what the polling shows is that majority of voters support public ownership, including conservatives. Um, I think the tragedy is that is now no longer represented in mainstream politics. There was a short period where those views were. People might go, well, that wasn't enough to win an election. Aware of that, 40% did vote for that prospectus back, obviously, in 2017. Um, um, and that was the first time Labour put on uh, seats since 1997. So it was a step in the right direction, wasn't it? Um, compared to always getting 42%. And I would say public ownership and the, the promise to publicly own, bring, to renationalise utilities was core uh, to Labour's surge. Obviously, there were other things which happened, which dented Labour support severely by 2019, but it wasn't public ownership. Um, but I think this just underlines the lived reality of privatisation, which is the catastro catastrophic failure that it represents. And, and, and I just don't think it's sunk in enough. Well, it hasn't because much of the media supports privatisation. Most of it does, um, which just shows how you have a media ecosystem completely out of sync with public opinion on so many core issues. Um, because it is a horrendous embarrassment for the entire neoliberal experiment, which was that if we privatise things, these utilities, it will improve service and lower costs and be more efficient. And on all those measures, it failed catastrophically. And, you know, one of the things that I did want to talk about partly was how what's happening to this country is it's almost going through, it's, it's going, it, it's undeveloping, you know, it's going backwards in terms of its economic and, and social development, quite obviously. I wrote about this week because one of the things that I was interested in was, um, and I wrote this about this in my column, is how anti-migrant backlash has been so poisonous to this country because what it's the, the, the state that we're in can be partly understood because of anti-migrant backlash. Because what it succeeded in doing is deflecting scrutiny away from the problems that we have, or sorry, away from those who are responsible for the problems, the causes of the problems. And that, that therefore we didn't deal with the causes of the problems because people were left constantly being told that it was people from different countries arriving here who were responsible for things like the lack of affordable housing or, 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 or strained public services um, or falling wages or a lack of secure jobs um, or bad infrastructure. I mean, you know, they just got scapegoated and that meant we didn't actually fix those problems and we, they were allowed to get worse by governments, which were, through their policies, made all those problems worse. I, you know, what I wrote about, and I just, just this is just some facts that I put in my column, which I just think are worth highlighting, which is, as I said earlier, the average Britain is set to be no better off in 2026 than they were in 2008. The poorest fifth are more than 20% poorer than their French and German counterparts. We've had an unprecedented slowdown of the nation's productivity levels since the Conservatives came to power. 
hospital waiting lists are at record highs, multiple housing crises to our living standards and security. By that, I mean home ownership, mortgage hikes, private rents in sector, insecurity, hiked, massively hiking rents, um, and also the lack of council housing. Um, privatized infrastructure from our creaking trains to our leaking water pipes. And um, again, just terrible infrastructure, rip-off prices. Um, you know, they offer services you'd expect from a country much poorer than their own, but extortionate prices. But I'm also, you know, it's things like, it's, it's quite striking, but look at the statistics on things that bring us together as a society, things that stop us being atomized individuals, things that force us to make eye contact with strangers or to engage in conversation with them or even more. Um, libraries, so nearly 800 closed in the 2010s. Nightclubs, a third of all nightclubs in this country have vanished in the last three years alone. And you can mention pub closures, you can throw that in. Town centres becoming deserts of shuttered windows, pound shops, and US candy stores. Now, I think it's very striking. There's so many other statistics you could look at just in terms of our decline, the decline of this country. I've not even mentioned potholes. I think potholes, people laugh about them or make them seem kind of ridiculous. You know, cycling around London, I don't think potholes are some sort of irrelevance. I know people have been injured because of potholes. Um, but you know, it, it's kind of literally illustrative of a country that is crumbling, isn't it? And I just think, you know, we've had now 13, well, we've had 13 years of a conservative government which implemented cuts and austerity. And we've had now over four decades of um, Thatcherism. And it has left this country as an increasingly poor country with a few rich areas and rich people in it. And that is the tragedy, the British tragedy. It is a story of decline and stagnation. When historians look at this period, when they look back at what we've lived through, they will, they will I think, look at this as a period of decline, stagnation and decay, that we are falling back into, you know, it's, it's, undeve it's, it's you know, undeveloping. That's what's happening to this country. And you can see other, lots of other richer countries have, have been, you know, faced their own decay and decline for many of the similar, similar reasons. Britain's been particularly acute, and that's no coincidence that we embarked on Thatcherism, neoliberalism, the so-called free market experiment, whatever you want to call it. Um, hold on. My... Is my mic still working? I just I saw my mic suddenly got switched off. Oh, it's use here we go. Hold on. Oh, it's back. We're back. Um yeah, I just think it's more it's it's striking how it's been, you know, we we started Thatcherism and neoliberalism um sooner and with more devastating consequences. Um and therefore it's not a surprise that we see more devastating consequences. I can see some comments here. Rachel Atwood. Michael Walker must be devastated by the lack of banking. <laughs> Funny actually, Michael Walker, who obviously from Navarra, who I spend um, is a very very good friend of mine, um, and um, we do offer, actually. To be honest, he's 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 calmed down a lot compared to maybe myself, even though I'm a geriatric millennial. Uh, but we do we do like to party. Um, otherwise, we go mad probably. If I'm honest. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, as FSM the dog points out, the sick man of Europe. Yeah, I mean, that's how we described in the 1970s, and that was used to justify Thatcherism. But now look at us. Now look at us. Um, 
yeah, I don't know if my internet is, I think this is probably, I mean, do you know what? I think it's Virgin Media. I was going to say, the reason I think you've been, I've been buffering is because of the broadband, because our broadband sucks. There's another example of our crap infrastructure. We can't even have good functioning broadband in this country. Um, it is, I, I just think it's striking because all of the conservatives, look, we're F-U-C-K-E-D, aren't we? You know, up. Um, you know, shit creep without a paddle. Um, but tragically, Labour are not offering a blueprint for transforming this country to deal with the what we just described as structural problems. What do we mean by structural problems? We mean these are things baked into the system. So things like stagnating and falling wages, well, that did not start, I'm afraid to say, under the Conservatives. It got a lot worse under the Conservatives, but you already saw it happening even before the financial crash for millions of workers. So what you have is a structural, that unless you change the structure, that's what you mean with the structural problem. You mean something's baked in to the system you have, and unless you change the system, then it's going to keep producing the same results. And that does mean more stagnating wages. Um, so I think, yeah, someone says, Jeremy would have sorted out your broadband issues. You know what? I'm going to say it now. Uh, to my death, I'm going to defend Labour's broadband um, policy of 2019. You know, the problem was back in 2019, I think someone made this point. This is where basically they they offered, um, they were going to nationalise um the broadband infrastructure, offer everyone um, advanced um, broadband uh, free of charge on the basis that it was a utility we all need to function in society. You can no longer be a citizen who is integrated in society without the internet. It's impossible, just completely impossible. Our society is so increasingly organised around the internet. Um, and the point they made was a lot, it was actually, you could argue, it was very good for particularly local businesses, let alone ordinary citizens, because... Um, in many areas, uh, they had bad broadband, and that had a devastating impact on their local on local businesses. Um, so, you know, I mean, I know that because it, it has impacted my work. It has look, you know, just as someone who runs a video channel is, as you, some of you know, having gone through it, um, crap broadband um, interferes with my own work all the time, whether it be doing TV from here or or talking to you guys. And, and obviously it suffers, you know, a lot of others suffer far, far worse. Um, so I just think, you know, that that policy actually would have brought us kicking and screaming in the 21st century. And I will defend it to my grave because it was a good policy. The problem was, as I think people at the top of the Corwin project would concede, is the problem is it just what they should have done is laid the foundations for it a lot earlier. Because I think a lot of people came out of nowhere. They're, what? What? Hello? What? Um, because what Labour are trying to do is repeat the 2017 trick of not making it a Brexit party election, a Brexit party election, a Brexit election, um, and making it about other issues. And they thought, let's just keep throwing policies in, and it actually overload. People felt overwhelmed. It's too much, and then they stopped, stopped thinking it was believable. But also, I think the other point that links into that is. Um, what they should have done is done a big campaign about how broadband coverage at, and provision was terrible in Britain and holding Britain back. And then when they introduced a policy on it, people would have, it would have responded to something which had already been flagged up. Kite flying, they call that, or laying the foundations, whatever you want to call it. But anyway, I usually support it. It's just an example of how we need to update our infrastructure. Um, David Browett, our country seems to be following Russia's example is becoming a kleptocracy with media barons and the right cheering it on. Well, yeah, David, I mean, to be honest, you know, you know, yeah, I mean, we're not, as you're saying, we're not, well, I don't think you'll say this, we're not, we're not where Russia is now, but you can see the echoes of, 
you know, the danger of having a managed, a so-called managed democracy where you get media outlets, which de facto, um, you know, cheer on the government, uh, where you get, you know, well-connected business people, well-connected to the ruling party, getting state bungs. So, you know, I mean, the you, you can draw parallels, repressive legislation, <laughs> um, like the, uh, the policing bill, uh, crackdowns and demonstrations. Look, we're not, obviously, I'm not going to say we're, you know, where Russia is. Russia is an outright dictatorship, um, which abuses human rights on a colossal scale, as well as, obviously, um, well, conducting an illegal invasion. And the, this country would never conduct an illegal invasion. So that's, firstly, let's make sure we don't make that comparison. Um, but, you know, you can just see the decline of democracy in places like Britain. And right-wing populism has played its role in that, because what right-wing populism does is... Um, it seeks to, um, I guess, attack the substance of democracy. So you keep the trappings of it, but you, you know, wage war on opponents, make them the enemy within, wage war in civil society. Uh, anyway, I think that's an important point. Everyone's saying Iraq war. I was taking the piss, guys. I know we invaded Iraq and it was illegal. That was the point I was making. Sorry. I should have made that clearer. Um, sorry. <laughs> Line sarcasm. Um, sorry about that. Um, we did invade Iraq and it wasn't illegal. That was the point I was making. But I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I've been obviously too deadpan there. Um, I will learn from that. Um, okay. So I think I'm going to go because I do have to do some more work. I am working on a very important story on Labour. So is this, wait, is this live? Very funny. Um, um, on stuff with, so I'm going to get onto that. I've got some interviews to do as well for a channel, which I need to um, sort out. I, do, I am going to approach Kate Rayworth because I think she's a very interesting thinker. And uh, I'd like to do more, interview more economists. We just interviewed an economist, obviously, brilliant economist. Um, Owen needs to work on his sarcasm face. Clearly, clearly. <laughs> um, I thought that was actually quite, um, I don't think that was subtle, but um anyway um i'm too terrific i'll take rachel i'll say that i'll say that at the age of 39 which i turned last week devastatingly uh, i used to hate being called cherubic i used to hate being told i looked young um but um i'll take what i can ask with you um oh brian class yeah okay i'm gonna put these on the list thanks for this everyone park clap oh the party conferences yeah so uh, yeah we've applied for a labor pass i wonder if labor's still gonna give me a pass but at some point do you know what i, I still have a labor party membership um and um we'll see if my telling the truth about the labor leadership and just saying facts about them um and do my job because just because I'm a member of the Labour Party doesn't mean I'm not an independent journalist who says what I think. Um, yeah, we'll see if they try and um, kick me out and ban me from covering it. Um, but anyway, we'll do our best. Um, and Conservative Party Commons is obviously the one that I enjoy doing the most. Uh, hold on. When I say enjoy doing it, I actually hate filming it. I, the reason I hate filming it is because um, when you're interviewing so many people who often can be just... I guess not full of what I'm describing as the milk of human kindness. And um, it does grind you down. <laughs> I do actually feel quite miserable, but I'm always proud of the video. Um, so anyway, there we go. Um, what I need to do now as well, we need to, as I said, Kia, Kia's my oldest cat, he's eight years old. And um, 
yeah, and he's lost a lot of weight. I'd actually be into if anyone's getting to, if anyone's got any ideas about this because he's eight, and so he was four kilos. I'm sorry to just throw this at you, but I'm thinking about it a lot, and actually just want some advice now. Um, he was four kilos. They've gone down to three point two, so he's lost eight hundred grams. He looks very thin. Talking to the vets, they're like he's starving. Um, tried to do a blood test, but the little boy fought back. We only got a slight blood test. So we have to do a proper one. We're giving him a proper, we're giving him this like bulky food. Um, but oh, someone asked, uh, Rachel asks kidney problems. It's actually his kidney and liver came back fine. Pancreas came back fine. Um, anyway, sorry, my cat is very, my two cats are very important to me. So, um, hopefully, hopefully I'll be fine. Um, but hopefully it just needs to can put on weight. Maybe he's just really stressed about the Conservative government and Labour's failure to offer an alternative. Don't blame him. Maybe he's just very upset that he's called Kia, <laughs> that he shares the name as, same name as Keir Starmer. Maybe he was like, at first he was like, oh my God, I'm so honoured to have the same name as, um, as uh, Keir, Star- Keir Hardy, which he, he was named after. And now he's like, could you change my name, please? Anyway, um, thanks for this. Yeah, veg- he could be a vegetarian. I can't say that. I don't. That's funny. Um, so, oh, David Bratt says his cat, Nan's cat, had similar issues. Put steroids, worms. I guess so. He's not. An in, he's not. In, he's an indoor cat. Can indoor cat gets worms? Maybe they can. Anyway, I've bored you enough for this. Um, do you, um, yeah, uh, we'll be back. Um, Bear in mind as well, I, I always forget to say, we are, all the videos I put, I put also put on Facebook, um, as well as YouTube and the podcast, so yeah, do listen to us wherever, or watch us wherever. Um, that's enough now, I'm going to go and feed the cat, or try to. Uh, lots of love, take care everyone, and I will speak to you in a bit. No, actually I'm not going to do that. I just got told off. Um, what I'm going to do is thank FSM as the dog, very fitting, David Bowetter, um, UK Subversion, uh, for your comments and to also once again uh, thank the guests. Sorry, that was a false a false ending, um, but I got told off. All right, lots of love, everyone, and don't forget to press like. Sorry, press like, like, press like now, and subscribe. Why are you subscribed? Blimey, that was rude. Press subscribe. All right, that's that's enough for me. Should we start again? <laughs>